Hello, welcome to Defense Against the Dark Arts. I'm Paul Mill, and this is episode 37, Public Relations and the Evil Therein. So uh, the, the, the essence here is don't let them change who you are, <laughs> right? So this, this podcast is, a, is an exploration of better reasoning, and, and uh, specifically for the uh, defense against the dark arts of manipulation and exploring the methods of rational and critical thought and the methods that are used to deceive us. So this episode is on the father of public relations, not specifically him, but his, his public relations, uh, Edward Bernays. And uh, I'll start with his uh, first book, uh, or at least his earlier book. I don't know, he might have wrote a book before this, but this one's called Crystallizing Public Opinion. So we'll go through this and talk about, um, um, well, let him expose what public relations actually is, right? So uh, despite Bernays explicitly uh, basing his art of manipulation on the known logical fallacy of stereotype, I may uh, appear to refer to PR as a class, a stereotypical class of people. However, if the definition of PR, public relations, is what Bernays is articulating, then it is not a stereotype, is it? It is the definition of that mode of deception. So it's a nuance, but it's an important one. So unlike the, uh, the often vilified defense lawyer, who has an incredible moral and social value defending those of us who are accused of something, which may not be true. Now, of course, they're going to be defending people who actually have done stuff, right? But every person should have their, their defense. So PR is, uh, its only value is to their client uh, who pays them to push a narrative. It's not about the truth. So unlike, uh, Unlike a defense lawyer who's making sure that people are not being unjustly prosecuted or persecuted for something they did not do, which is a valuable asset, right? So for society. So uh, um, PR is more like an assassin, you know, uh, who's hired to kill anyone from a sweet old lady to an innocent child to a really nice person who happens to know something that may negatively impact uh, someone with uh, sufficient resources to acquire said mercenary. <laughs> the moral compass has to be broken um, in all of the antagonists, right? If, 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 if they're cognizant of, this, of the situation that's happening, right, from the assassin to the client and anyone in that loop, right? So since there are so many with functioning moral compasses, secrecy is critical. So there's compartmentalization, manipulation, and many other factors of information security. Now there may be PR firms that do have moral limits, uh, you know, to what they will push, but uh, that is just speculation. <laughs> I have no concrete evidence to prove such a thing. So I want to make it clear that uh, there could possibly be a person who works in public relations that is not an immoral douchebag sociopath due to the law of probabilities. <laughs> so, so where does reasoning come from, right? Or where does it reside in our brain? 
reasoning and consciousness are part of the subject of, of manipulation because they are the things that are being targeted. But isn't it also suspicious that asking questions about reason and consciousness has immediately uh, an immediate feel of woo-woo, right? It does feel like I'm going to start talking about magic crystals and <laughs> crap like that, right? So is there a reason for this? I don't know. Are we conditioned to not look into these kind of things? Maybe, maybe not. Is, is one responsible for their thoughts, beliefs, or mode of thinking if, if those independent variables have been manipulated by others? Well, if you allow yourself to be manipulated, are you responsible for your beliefs? This, these are getting into, uh, I don't know, who's responsible, right? The manipulated or the manipulator, manipulator. Do we not have some responsibility as, you know, individuals to stop ourselves from being manipulated, right? So considering we most likely know a very small percentage of all there is to know, assuming knowledge is infinite, it is more probable that consciousness and, uh, and reality are way more complicated and are unknown than we currently think. We need to be open to more possibilities than even the most naive child, right? While of course maintaining a critical spirit as in analytical, not cynical, but analytical, right? We need proofs. We need to be more precise with our definitions. I conflate and misuse words, you know, too often. There are a lot of meanings of the word critical. Uh, the one we are obviously using is analytical, exercising careful judgment and judicious evaluation. Critical, questioning, analytical. Skeptical, being inclined to doubt all opinions. Cynical is a habitually negative outlook. So a healthy dose of skepticism with a large dose of criticality, I suppose that's the word also uh, means indispensable, crucial. I interviewed uh, for a documentary, I did uh, this guy, Jack Pedler, he's the drummer for Teenage Head. And he talked uh, a lot about our being in a prison in the spiritual world. So our consciousness, you know, being way smarter than we are, and this is some attenuated prison where we pay penance until we discover or realize something. We pay off a debt that we are somehow responsible for. Responsible. So uh, my conversation with Jack Pedler uh, dove deep into metaphysics and speculation, which is always fun. <laughs> Sir. There may be agents of the spiritual world here trying to block us from having a cognitive or thought sovereignty or even understanding that we have it uh, and it's under attack. I don't know. Cognitive sovereignty, thought sovereignty. So I'm thinking uh, about thinking, which is metacognition. <laughs> thinking is, of course, reasoning and judgment. Right? Cognition is 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 thinking, but also uh, perception and remembering, but we seem to conflate the two. If there are agents here uh, trying to control our thoughts, inject cognitive illness of fallacy, they include the malevolent forces of public relations without a doubt. So there may be uh, agents here trying to help us uh, to have independent thoughts uh, and cognitive sovereignty, 
Maybe perhaps we could call them cognitive doctors or thought docs. <laughs> or perhaps we are part of a uh, Gustavian, not Gustavian, what was his name? Young, Carl Jung, a uh, larger consciousness that is always at odds simply by existing with our independent consciousness. A force to pull us back from the independent back into the collective. Perhaps there is a, a balance in the forces for independence and uh, collectivity. The irrational forces of collectivity versus the pure and true forces of independence. So if we lose independent, sovereign control of our cognition, we become part of a larger collective that we do not control. This could be a metaphor for like heaven and hell, right? Independence and collectivism, right? Is it uh, an either or, or is there a gradient between independence and collectivism? We may control our actions and behaviors to exist in society, but to surrender our thoughts to external forces is the epitome of subjugation to evil and relinquishing what it is to be human, the gift that we all received at birth, right? Freedom of thought. Now, I'm not going to make a judgment as it appears to be a slippery slope, so we'll put a pin in that for now. But even if this cognitive, independent, collective dichotomy well, that's not the right word as there may be a gradient and it may not be mutually exclusive. But uh, this pairing of potentially opposite concepts that may not be mutually exclusive, there may, uh, there's got to be a word for that, perhaps um, antagonistic concepts. I don't know. Put it the extremes, but conflict in the interlap. <laughs> Independent control over one's thoughts at one end and the uh, alien control at the other. But once you relinquish control of your thoughts, you don't know if it's one devil or more, like many disparate devils raping your undefended cognition. <laughs> you, may, you may be part of one collective uh, or many. <laughs> In any event, you no longer have control, which is the point here, right? So I'm tempted to create a name for this independent uh defended control over our cognition versus the wild, undefended, free range uh, versus benign uh, external forces versus complete malignant foreign domination and all conflicts in between. So those, though those are uh, prime competing concepts and political ideologies and, and outlooks on life, you know, the, the independence versus collective. It's a recurring theme in a, in a lot of ideologies. And being in a collective implies one relinquishes their identity and cognitive sovereignty, right? We are Borg. We are woke. We are the woke Borg, right? I guess cognitive sovereignty suffices. And like a nation, it's either defended or it's not. Even if it is defended, those defenses may not hold up against vastly superior forces. This is the history of humanity. There are external forces attacking our cognitive sovereignty. Unfortunately, the only forces depending, defending our cognitive sovereignty is us, the individual, you protecting your own. There doesn't seem to be any agency or group out there defending all of ours, right? We would think there would be after these thousands of years of human civilization, but there doesn't appear to be, does there? So either innately or by external stim, uh, stimuli, it is ultimately up to us individually to protect ourselves from the well-funded perception management machine. 
may think I sound like a you know a crazy conspiracy theorist. I hear it too. But uh, if you critically read Edward Bernays, you you won't think so. So one may argue there are benefits to collectivity, as there isn't one better system and uh, weaknesses to individualism. There is the trope of safety in numbers and synergistic effects. And yes, those are valid to a, a certain context and in certain circumstances. But all of that pales in comparison to the safety of our control over our own thoughts, our cognitive health. In the context of thought, there is not safety in numbers. That is the known fallacy of appeal to the masses. Cooperation is not the same as collectivism. Collectivism of thought has a name already. It's called schizophrenia. <laughs> not to impugn those suffering from schizophrenia, perhaps we should come up with a different term. Or should we? I mean, those who allow others to control their thoughts, whether they are cognizant of it or not, are a form of schizophrenia. A schizophrenic? Um, apparently, a uh, Swiss dude coined the term to describe a the separation of function between personality, thinking, memory, and perception. Today, we just think of it, you know, as on the street, as, as voices in people's heads. Oh, they're hearing voices. They're schizophrenic. But schizophrenics often claim someone else is controlling their thoughts. Well, perhaps those schizophrenics are just more observant than the average cat because there absolutely is other people fighting to control our thoughts, our beliefs, values, actions, and opinions. And there have been for at least a century. More than likely, way longer than that, but documented, according to this book, at least, at minimum, for 100 years. So, and according to this book, there are several industries built around it. Public relations, advertising, ideological universities, politicians, the puppet masters one level up, you know, with the big money. I say a, a treatment for schizophrenia would be to make them read Edward Bernays, or perhaps their psychiatrists to read Bernays critically, which is a pipe dream I know as the soft sciences are not actual science, and the chance of any of them being critical thinkers is slim to none. <laughs> so you, you think of the, uh, the different potential levels of consciousness, Carl Jung's collective consciousness, Gustav Bond's, uh, Laban's uh, crowd mind, the individual, is there lower levels of consciousness, perhaps my lizard brain or even the cells of my body, but the one we have control over is the one we need to defend that control over. And that is the one under the greatest attack. The crowd minds, if they even exist, are built on the foundation of the manipulated individuals. This makes me think of the idea of phenomenon. Uh, a phenomenon is an event perceptible to the senses, but perception is under control of cognition, which is what the likes of Bernays are targeting. Then we have the concept of noumenon, a thing that is not perceptible by the senses. I think Kant uh, said noumenon uh, are purely uh, intellectual intuition, but that's bullshit as the, the mind would still perceive them intuition or not, and being perceived would make them a phenomenon. It would seem to me that noumenon are events not perceived 
by Target. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that they don't exist, just that they are not perceived. And this lines up with the dark arts of manipulation. Now, it could be, you know, slightly misinterpreting Numenon, but this is how I'm interpreting it for our purposes. The key, uh, a key tool in the defense against the dark arts of manipulation would be for us to turn Numenon into phenomenon. Things we do not perceive into things we do perceive. <laughs> not so hard. Right. A key step in doing that is to increase our schemata, our library of concepts that we understand individually, to include those that are used by PR and their cast of evil. So not to change our schemata, which is what manipulators do, but to add to it, to put another book on the shelf, which is what educators are supposed to do. So we need to be critical, a dose of skeptical, but not cynical and not pessimistic. Some people conflate a lot of these words, so I will spell out my meaning. We need to be analytical, questioning, weary of logical fallacies and trust no one, but not negative nor nihilistic. Yes, this is an obvious statement and shouldn't need to be said, yet here we are. It's odd how collectivism is often uh, associated with, with nihilism. Collectivists and nihilists, pessimists and death, <laughs> they all seem to go together like, uh, you know, peaches and cream. Or, or, or non-existence, where, where independence is associated with existentialism, optimism, joy, and life, or, or the enjoyment of existence. So we have non-existence versus existence, and this battle is truly existential. So your control over your mind ultimately is all we have in this world, and that control is what makes us human. And if you do not have control, you are a drone and not human, not fully. A nihilist would never ask if it's good or bad to be a nihilist because a true nihilist does not recognize good or bad. They've taken Nietzsche's humor to the literal extreme. A lot of people think Nietzsche is serious. He may, be in a, may have been at times, but I think the guy was joking. I think he had a pretty good sense of humor. Why am I so great, he says, right? Like, come on. Anyways, therefore, if you, if you think it's bad to be a nihilist, you are, by definition, an existentialist because nihilists don't have the concept or recognize the concept of good or bad. So if you think it's bad, you are, by definition, an existentialist, and existentialists are also, by definition, pro-independence. Not to say we have to force ourselves to fit into the pigeonhole of someone else's definition, but it is an interesting comparison observation. Perhaps there's not a force for either extreme of independence or collectivism, but a force, say, for a ratio of 10 to 1 or 1 to 10 or some other ratio in between the two, you know, one being collectivist and 10 being, you know, uh, existentialist. I don't know. But as, as far as, as defending ourselves from manipulation, we have to shoot for 100% uh, independence of thought. Perhaps that is why it's so easy to fool Marxist types. They want to be collectivists and have some other force uh, think for them. You know, it's, it's lazy um, or it's cognitively impaired or perhaps just cognitively unfit, which would mean uh, a little cognitive exercise can bring them back to health. We could hope. 
is there only one force between good and evil, like gravity acting on a scale? Or are there two competing forces, angels and demons, yin and yang, having a, a tug of war? Or are there multiple forces, like corporate greed hiring many different PR firms who make news and crystallize public's opinions to the whims of these desperate big money turds? Uh, if, if we had to distill it, the, the greatest force of evil today is big money, utilizing the sociopaths in public relations. That big money could be governments, corporations, or just freak billionaire weirdos, <coughs> Bill Gates. <coughs> the ironic part is the big money freaks are independent thinker, thinkers using collectivism against the masses. Perhaps I have a libertarian flaw in my psyche that leads me to believe the people on the street have the capacity to be independent thinkers, and that variety will lead to progress or something better. Perhaps my want of independence for the individuals in the public is some form of collective independence, united in our independence. <laughs> I remember reading Benjamin Franklin when I was a teenager. He might have uh, incepted that seed in my impressionable uh, young mind. So our concepts or schema, the quanta of consciousness, who knows, right? If a theory is not verifiable, does that mean that it's not valid? It doesn't exist. It's not true just because you can't verify it. Just just as thinking you you know doesn't mean you do know. Right, being certain about something doesn't. There's no correlation between certainty and actual truthfulness. Right, so you can be really certain about something and still be a hundred percent wrong. We've all had that, or we've seen it at least. We've all had it. A lot of us won't admit it, but we've all seen it in other people. So I assume no humans uh, want to relinquish control over their beliefs, modes of thought, and opinions. To me, it's just not natural but I'm experienced enough to know people are wired differently. Bernays says that public relations, I will just probably refer to public relations as PR from now on, as most people are familiar with that. He claims PR affects uh, daily life of the entire population. Affect with an A. So he's referring to the feelings from the get-go. Affect, right? Affect means it's a feeling versus effect with an E which is, you know, the effects of something. So Bernays starts off with trying to sell PR to the reader. He says the PR council is also called propagandist, press agent, and publicity man. PR, I quote, colors the minds of the public in a certain way. This is what Edward Bernays specifically said. He says journalism utilized PR and PR utilizes propaganda. Propaganda is defined as the attempt to manipulate as many minds as possible to think or act a certain way. Side note, far-left freaks at PBS included this book and their books that shook the world. <laughs> this is a fact. Right? So uh, this is a Bible to, uh, to scumbags in PR and apparently at PBS. Bernays claims that some people condemn the entire profession of PR and its members, 
I'm one of those, but regards these condemnations as claims based on nothing more substantial than vague impressions. So reading this book should be stepping us up away from vague impressions, one would assume. Otherwise, the book is meaningless if it doesn't give us anything more than vague impressions. So if it does give us more than vague impressions, and I still think that PR is douchebaggery after reading his book, what are we to assume? I can say that I was leery of PR and my hair was blown back by, by reading this book at how repulsive this industry of sociopaths for sociopaths is, according to the father of the industry. Bernays' vague claims about these anonymous critics is an apparent attempt to dismiss what were most likely valid concerns about this profession of manipulation and its potentially harmful effects in the wrong hands. Like all things that have impact, they can be used either benevolently or malevolently. Bernays buries the potential malevolent uses at the start, not a promising indicator of his morals, but perhaps an accurate one. Bernays writes a, I'm quoting, slight examination into this disapproval readily reveals it's based on vague impressions. <laughs> okay, here you are with the vague impressions again. One would think the father of the industry would do a little more than a slight examination into the public disapproval disapproval of his industry and perhaps address each concern and, and show us how their disapprovals are invalid. But Bernays does no such thing. This speaks volumes if one takes a beat to think about that. Bernays defines PR counsel as one who directs and supervises the activities of his clients wherever they impinge upon the daily life of the public. He interprets the client to the public and the public to the client. Interpret meaning to render clear or explicit. To explain as if he has some oracle of Delphi. <laughs> he says PR gives advice on actions and the use of media to reach the desired targets. Media, he says, can be printed, spoken, visual in ads, lectures, the stage, movies, news, or any other form of thought communication. Bernays gives an innocuous example of a hotel in New York where people started canceling their reservations. When the manager asked why, there was a false rumor that the hotel was going to close. So the hotel hired a PR counsel who told them to publicly give their mater d a newsworthy raise and a long-term contract. So they did, and it made the news, and it it was more money than a gentleman would make, and the rumors were quashed and business returned. Fine start. Nothing to worry about that. That seems like a valid use of public relations. Side note, a mater d is short for mater de hotel, which translates to master of the hotel, which is an ironic title for a butler, <laughs> I think. Anyways, Bernays' second case was a of a magazine that wanted to increase its prestige among a more influential group of advertisers. I interpret that to mean the magazine wanted to be associated with higher end products, presumably to increase their prestige at 
large and allow them to charge more for subscription or ad space. So listen to this conspiracy theory of convoluted layers that the PR Council actually came up with. This was their actual documented plan. That sounds like a conspiracy theory. So PR arranged to have a study done based on an article from the magazine, which had the thesis that the pace that kills is the slow, deadly, dull routine, not the high pressure based on work, which interested and excites. That's a fucking title. All right. So many conflations aside, the PR council then arranged for a physician associated with a medical journal to conduct a study. The PR was using the doctor as an apparent fallacious appeal to title. The doctor was to target hundreds of members of the quality public, i.e. business professionals, according to Bernays. Uh, the answers from this quality public was collated and uh, analyzed, and the resulting abstract, which miraculously was the same as what the PR wanted before they even met the doctor, the results were given out freely to newspapers, magazines, and class journals, which published them widely. Business orgs then uh, reprinted the symposium by the thousands and distributed them free of charge, presumably because the symposium was of great interest. The result, according to Bernays, was the magazine being considered by a public, which up to then may have considered it of no serious uh, significance. So the chain of deception is the magazine hires the PR, PR uh, uh, filters articles or an article, then they create a study, hire a doctor who's associated with a medical journal, and then they target quality men, and then they complete this study, and then that's handed out to newspapers, magazines, and class journals who then resend them out again in business organizations, and the reprinting of the magazine, and then finally to the destination, which is the public. So that is quite a long chain, magazine, PR, article, study, doctor, medical journal, quality men, completed study, newspapers, magazines, class journals, business orgs, reprinting the magazine, and finally to the targets of the public. Wow. Who along that chain uh, knew the purpose of their actions was to increase the prestige of a magazine? The magazine and the PR and maybe the hired doctor, or was the doctor not hired and maybe he was just duped with appeals to vanity or, or something along those lines, or maybe threat. Maybe there was a stick. They're going to have your license revoked if you don't do this. The medical journal didn't know or care. The quality men, the newspapers, other magazines, class journals, business organizations, and the public certainly were unaware they were participating in a campaign designed and orchestrated with one purpose, specifically to increase the prestige of a specific magazine. So the takeaway from, from this is perhaps most people participating in a PR campaign are unaware of their specific part, useful idiots, and they, and they wouldn't be doing so without the, the hidden puppet master orchestrating their actions without their knowledge. That is the case of manipulating people's actions to manipulate others' opinions. The secret sauce is that most of the participants are unaware of it. If they were aware, they would most likely not waste their time. But that was not the end of it. <laughs> PR, being aware of the problem, 
the emotional appeal, the, the call to action paradigm, found an article in the client's magazines about some humanity crisis and sent it to someone who was in charge of relief committees throughout the country. This dude was Herbert Hoover, who was not yet president, but clearly politically active and well-known. Hoover then obediently resent the magazine article to his varied relief committees, 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 who in turn used it to obtain support and contributions for relief work. The magazine added it to uh, its perceived influence and standing via the cause. So free press via charitable cause is not intrinsically a bad thing. It's usually a win-win for all involved, but not always. There have been some Save the Africans type campaigns that raised resources and all the virtue signaling attendees could feel good about themselves. But the end result was the gangs and militias ending up with more food and ammunition to oppress the people, making the victim situation even worse had the do-gooders not gotten involved. I hate Mondays. Uh, Something... That's a bit of a clue, right? I don't want to say the guy's name so I don't get sued by his stupid ass, but something being done, uh, even with good intentions, can easily go sideways in a complex system. The arrogance of the orchestrators simplifying the world to a level that they can understand does not in any way simplify the actual world or change it in any way. Had the do-gooders thought just a little harder about the reality of what's going on in the world and, and not everyone having the same values, but that's the crux with many people. We project ourselves, our values on everyone else, and we assume wrongly that everyone thinks the same or perhaps uh, negative values on others, depending if we don't like them or if they disagree with us, right? Uh, we should be observing what values the individuals actually have, which is a great challenge as even knowing a person for many years is not sufficient to know the depths of their values. We still get surprised by some, you know, someone's sinister motivations after you've known them for years. Like, really? That person would do that? Good believer. Case in point, I've known a person since kindergarten and was still surprised by her demonstration of psychotic values 40 years later when she actively sought to isolate her longtime best friend from all of her friends, not just the, the evil woman's friends, but her best friend's friends, right? From she wanted to totally isolate her. This is a tyrannical cycle termagant. You know, uh, a termagant is a woman regarded as quarrelsome or, or, scor- or scolding uh, a shrew. <laughs> termagant. So we don't know other people's values. What's worse is projecting our values onto them. We need to uh, keep a box that is labeled unknown. Mislabeling is not beneficial. Jumping to conclusions is not beneficial. So Bird's, uh, Bernays third case <clears throat> is a meat packing house. This is the case that I'll come back to as we go through this podcast. So a meat packer who already dominated the market wanted to sell more bacon. So they hired a PR firm. The PR realizing, I'm going to quote here, realizing that hearty breakfasts were dietetically sound, bullshit assumption by PR, 
suggested that a physician undertake a survey to make this medical truth articulate. <laughs> that is some valid science, right? So this is pretty uh, hardcore confirmation bias. You make an assertion, call it a medical truth, then get a doctor to articulate that truth with a study. Science doesn't appear to have uh, advanced much further than this 100 years ago, as we see a lot of bullshit in New England Journal of Medicine and what's that, that other fucking one from the uh, London? Uh, it doesn't matter. So <clears throat> the moral of this story is to never trust a doctor or anyone simply because of their title or position. That is a known fallacy. They need to prove their points just like anybody else. So many things wrong with their this, the Bernays assertion. You know, first they they realized it, right? <laughs> Realizing that a hearty breakfast, we just realized it, right? So they realized it, and it miraculously jibed with their clients' wants. Imagine how that worked. So second, a hearty breakfast means or or hearty. The word hearty means wholesome, and wholesome only means conducive or suggestive of good health or well-being. Third. Uh, Nowhere is there proof or even evidence that bacon is hearty, nor is there any evidence that more bacon is more hearty, as the people are already buying bacon. And, and it's redundant to say that hearty breakfasts, that hearty breakfasts are dietetically sound or part of a sound diet. Dietetically sound is how Bernays puts it. But this is evidence of the values and reasoning of Bernays PR. Simply asserting something is sufficient proof, proof, according for him, to be a medical truth in the mind of all PR. Remember that one. And Bernays claims PR create the news. So they can assert medical truths and they also create the news. Pretty fucking scary so far. Put it all together and what do you get? Fear porn pushing pro big pharma mandates that trample people's rights, freedoms, and sovereignty over their own bodies and ideas and beliefs. So PR hires a doctor to take a survey to prove their pre-established medical truth. Let's call that science and then articulate that to the target masses. If anyone who supports actual science dares question that predetermined results of the doctor's conducted study, PR can just call those types conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, racists, or extreme misogynists, as we've seen in Canada. If you don't eat more bacon, you're not an anti-science rube even if it's a known medical truth that more bacon, according to PR, is healthy. More healthy, right? So keep in mind that Bernays um, wrote this specific tactic in 1923, 100 years ago. Has the, the perception management stopped pulling that vintage rug out over the unsuspecting public's eyes? You know, with great effect but not with complete penetration. Perhaps PR types uh, view the fact that it still works on a public as proof that the public are stupid idiots and deserve to get what they want. I don't believe that. I don't want to believe that, but it doesn't matter what I want to believe. I think 
a lot of the public, maybe there's that 80-20 rule, all right? Maybe 80% of them are idiots. 80% of us, maybe 80% of us, maybe we all are 80% of the time. <laughs> and we're only not idiots 20% of the time. I don't know, that 80-20 rule is pretty loose. So there are clearly some people who aren't fooled. And when PR attack them via ad hominems, they being the only critical part of the population, uh, will be the only part who recognize the ad hominems as a fallacious attack. So it's a win-win for PR. So they're attacking people with the tools that only the people they're attacking will recognize. The sheep won't see it because they're uncritical. And uh, the result is sheep being further deceived and now disregard the critical thinkers' questions and the critical thinkers having further confirmation of a campaign of deception. So attacks like this have the effect of also polarizing the population into critical thinkers who dare question and exploited sheep who think they are smarter than everyone else. That is the sad truth. What I find more surprising is that there are, uh, there've always been doctors who go along with whatever PR or big money is pushing, putting their reputation on the line and the lives of the public in danger. And, you know, so they support, you know, whatever the politicians and news media tell them to. Perhaps they believe that people are like goldfish and will have very short memories as these things are eventually discovered and proven false later. Like the whole thing, right? With the uh, member lead was a science, it it was scientifically proven that lead didn't contaminate the environment from the gas and cigarettes didn't cause cancer, scientifically proven and what was the other one they said? Oh, sugar. Sugar is healthier than fat. You need to have sugar. Even though we evolved, you need the three core things in any diet is fat, protein, and carbs. You need to have fat. Your brain requires fat. No, 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 don't eat fat. Eat sugar, right? Big sugar. So perhaps uh, PR target the Gustavian crowd and are expecting the backlash from reasonable people. This is all part of the plan. We expect a certain bit of blowback, right? Bernays later refers to those who fight against his uh, new opinions as just close-minded rubes, right? So I'm not sure if Bernays and PR are deluded or are aware of their shtick, but uh, they can't be that ignorant. They can't be that sociopathic, can they? Maybe they are. So some people conflate sociopath with psychopath, and sometimes there's different definitions, but uh, some say psycho is an old term and sociopath is the new term. I differentiate between the two as a sociopath knows what they're doing as is wrong, whereas a psychopath does not. Now, that's not uh, what the school supports today, but I don't care. As long as you know what my meaning is when I'm talking, this is how I differentiate between sociopaths and psychopaths. Keep in mind, too, that Bernays didn't write this book to disparage public relations. He wrote it to promote it. This is the best of the best, right? It's still this, it's exposing them as sociopaths. So imagine the stories that he actually has that he doesn't want you to hear. So if this is the, you know, the best examples uh, that he could come up to persuade us to the benefits, you know, if, if this is the best examples that he could come up with to persuade us of the benefits and utility of public relations, clearly Bernays has a different value set and reasoning than I do. 
So I have to go back to uh, to his more bacon is better as a medical truth for a second. That logic is analogous to if two painkillers are beneficial, then more is obviously better. A bottle, perhaps, right? which is clearly bullshit. It's all about dosage. And as we know today, there's been a lot of studies about, you know, eating too much by the, uh, ironically enough, by the big sugar, uh, they, they've say that, you know, too much bacon or too much fat is bad for you. You need to replace that with sugar. These are old studies now, right? But they say, you know, it clogs up your heart. You can't have bacon every day. You can't have more bacon. More bacon is even worse for you, right? So now these, these, there's competing PR, uh, bullshit stories out there. So obviously we all know dose, right? Dose is critical. You can't have too much of something or you can have too much water even. You can't have too much of anything and it's detrimental. It's all about the proper dosage. Anyways, but you might scoff that a well-educated group of well-funded researchers today might be so foolish as Bernays guys back in the day, but I can give you a modern case. Now, I may not have all the details correct, but I'll be pretty close, but I'm going from memory. There was a study paid for by someone in the food industry. I think it was someone in the big sugar lobby. And uh, I can't remember specifically, it might've been, I don't want to say, but I can't, I don't know. Anyways, um, but their study was that about more antioxidants, uh, you know, if, if this tomato paste has more antioxidants, then it's obviously better for you since there's more, more is better, right? So the study demonstrated how tomato skins have antioxidants and that protest, processed tomato paste or skin, they shred it up and your body can absorb way more antioxidants than if you just eat a tomato. So they're saying, therefore, this study pr uh, proves that processed tomato so sauce is more healthy. See how they're jumping? They're making a claim. Just because your body absorbs more antioxidants doesn't mean that it's more healthy. It just means it absorbs more antioxidants from shredded uh, tomatoes. So that's all they proved. And they jumped. They made a, a causation correlation leap there, right? And this is modern fucking well-funded science, right? So you, at first listening, you may, well, that's plausible. You know, what's this idiot on this podcast talking about? Obviously, if there's more antioxidants, it's better for you, right? No. That's, that's not the case. There was an independent study that wasn't paid for by Big Sugar. It was at, I believe, Harvard. And uh, there, I don't know who funded them, but it definitely wasn't Big Sugar. They found that like most things, dose does make a difference. And just like the analogy of painkillers, they found that some antioxidants, and there's a curve, right? A little bit, you, you have, might have too little, a little bit more is better for you, but it's a curve. It peaks and then it goes down, right? Too many is not only not beneficial, it may be detrimental to your health. So by having too much antioxidants via tomato paste or whatever, and it's like uh, sugar, when you, when you drink orange, if you eat an orange, you get all the fiber, you get full. You can't eat two oranges or three oranges. Sometimes you might be able to eat two, but you know, you can't eat a whole like five oranges, but when you drink a glass of orange juice, all that stuff's been processed and shredded. So now you're getting like eight oranges worth of sugar in, in one thing. That's not natural, right? It's the same thing as the tomato paste. So this is the same idiocy, ideological uh, idiocy, you know, the, 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 these scientists are this stupid, this idiotic. You would you assume that they should be halfway intelligent. And, and, and they're, they're, they're making assumptions as medical truths and it's still happening today. I mean, I was floored when I read that and I even got to arguments with these people on social media saying, no, man, look at this Harvard study, right? Anyways, how could you, uh, how could all those, those well-educated, so-called well-educated experts and PhDs fall for this, you know? So either we have two solutions. Either, it's not an either or fallacy, there might be some other thing, but 
the two main things that I can come up with is either they are corrupt and they are answering for uh, their funding, whoever the funding wants them to have the studies say, then they're doing it, right? Which is kind of mafia, but that's kind of how it seems to be rolling. Or they're stupid, right? They could be so dumb that they can't, they know that, oh, well, more antioxidants, that, that's got to be better. Oh, well, more painkillers, that's got to be better. More bacon, that's got to be better. Right? This is idiotic. Professionals, how many years of university do they have in there? That fucking stupid. It's frustrating. So regardless, uh, this is sufficient evidence for us to not accept the word of a well-educated expert on any matter based solely on their titles. Today, public health has compromised the reputation to the point of their being, if not completely useless or detrimental, uh, you know, they should be completely defunded. <laughs> or, I mean, we need to come up with some better thing because we do need to have medical science and, and, and research, but these bastards are... Uh, are uh, incompetent or corrupted. And I, I just, it's, anyways, the more you look, the, the scarier it gets. So Bernays' fourth case is that of the hairnet company. And I'll come back to this one throughout the podcast as well. A uh, hairnet company was losing sales due to the vogue of women cutting their hair into bob cuts. So they hired a PR firm, the hairnet company did. And the PR firm investigated and, in, and advised the hairnet company that the opinions of club women as leader of the woman community should be made to articulate a certain concept. <laughs> they should be made. So these women's leaders should be made to articulate a certain concept. So a leading artist was obtained to take a survey among these club women the resultant responses magically confirmed the PR council's judgment. Imagine that. The opinions of these club women were given to the targets, women of the general public, which helped arouse what had evidently been latent, a latent question in these, in these target women's minds about hair length. The result was that long hair was made more sociably acceptable than bobbed hair, and the vogue was therefore partially checked. And the hairnet company sold more hairnets to the duped women who were mind-raped to not have bobbed hair because the hairnet company won't sell as much hairnets. So this attack uh, depends on the targets not knowing the true events. Could you imagine telling women to grow their hair so a hairnet company can make more money off of them? That would at least be more honest. Imagine if the woman found out the truth of what really transpired. You stupid women are costing us profits by not styling your hair the way we, the hairnet company, want. So we will manipulate you to have the style we want you to have by fallacious appeals to club women and for the, the fallacious appeal to a, a popular artist on our dime, <laughs> right? So is this uh, attack uh, moral in Bernays' eyes? He could argue that 
uh, hair length and fashion are innocuous and it doesn't really matter, but that doesn't change the grotesqueness of this deception and mindfuckery of, of innocent people. And it is not innocuous, the process that they went through. So if that study was uh, overtly sponsored by the hairnet company and the leading artist expressed uh, which PR firm contacted them and everyone in that chain of deception was fully informed and transparent, I would say have at it. But that is not what transpired. So what do you think happens in PR and big money today? Let's look at the, the, the chain, the conspiracy chain of the hairnet company here. So hairnet company, PR, leading artist, club women, women in public. So that's only a five link chain, five layers of bullshit. All the average women in public see is the club women and the leading artist. And that is by design. It is a conspiracy, and if one of those women of the public try to warn her friends uh, of the their friends of the conspiracy to deceive them, they would surely be called a conspiracy theorist, and it would be super easy for PR to print op-eds and magazine articles about the mental illness of women who think the hairnet lobby is conspiring to make women grow their hair. <laughs> they could even hire a doctor to perform a study to make it a medical truth. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. That would also shut up the smart women who figured it out or have evidence of the conspiracy because their friends would think they have a mental illness if they said anything negative about the hairnet company. <sighs> like a, uh, a lot of crimes, always look at who benefits most, Right. You might have, you know, uh, passion, crimes of passion where there's no benefit, but generally speaking, when you have this kind of stuff, look at where the money's flowing, right? So given this account of manipulation of women by a PR firm uh, at the behest of a client to change their fashion, I put forward for consideration the semi-recent women's fashion of wearing rubber boots. Anyone who's had to wear rubber boots knows they are the least comfortable footwear and are only worn uh, when absolutely necessary. It's possible that the push for women to wear rubber boots was a study or a test just to see how far women's fashion can be pushed. I didn't notice it until they started pushing for women to not wear socks in these rubber boots, which is of course the worst. It exacerbates the discomfort and maximizes foot juice. <laughs> There is no doubt people are being toyed with for the benefit or the amusement, perhaps, of others, you know, uh, just to see how far the, the manipulation has effect, you know, the whim of, of big money. So Bernays' example is, is 100 years old or more. He wrote about it 100 years ago, so it's more than 100 years old. And the fact that it's most likely still happening today is evidence there is a sufficient mass uh, or pool of uncritical targets to manipulate, despite society knowing about manipulation for centuries, or at least a century. I think it was P.T. Barnum who uh, was amazed at how immediately after one person was suckered, there was another one ready to be duped immediately after, which he, he famously said, there's a sucker born every minute. 
Is this pool of suckers created or are they organically just there? The PR council and uh, salesmen might call them low-hanging fruit, the easily exploitable. Can we, uh, can we help this low-hanging fruit? Perhaps there's some way to get the tree to grow so the uh, snakes in the grass can no longer reach the, the low hangers. <laughs> Perhaps uh, this is part of some uh, meta ecosystem of predator and prey, and we shouldn't bother trying to teach the rabbits to watch out for the snakes. It's pretty pessimistic, but uh, if nothing else, these podcasts will be a uh, note to self. Perhaps I am a low-hanging apple that has sprung arms and is climbing the tree. <laughs> Bernays gives a, a few cases where the, uh, the government and military used PR, uh, dictated a story to the news, and the news were apparently subservient to them. And PR prepared a statement for the War Department, and the Associated Press sent it as news. PR's various measures uh, were used to appeal to the public's pride, obligation, and honor. All very propagandistic, all used in manipulation. How mail and op-eds are typically used. Bernays mentions how uh, other governments, too, use PR to uh, make studies and turn things into uh, interesting stories. Or of, of news value. Uh, to get the public's, uh, into the public's consciousness. Bernays gives an example of how New York's tourism industry was in decay due to the perception of it being a cold and inhospitable shithole. (laughs) That perception may not be accurate. It may be accurate. So they hired PR who created the Welcome Stranger Committee, which helped to establish a New York's, uh, a New York's good repute I have to call bullshit on that one. I mean, this is like a hundred years ago and New York is still considered a cold, inhospitable shithole where you get mugged seconds after getting off the bus, right? Oh, anyways, if we were to ask three randos on the street, um, you know, if they think New York, uh, what do they think of New York? I would bet that they would, uh, you know, you would hear cold, inhospitable shithole. So Bernays uh, has a case in which a radium company wanted to promote the use of radium for cancer treatment, something which we have not done since World War II. So PR got the clients to found the first national radium bank in order to crystallize the impression that radium should be used and available and is available for all physicians. So notice Bernays does not mention any studies on risks or efficacy of the treatment nor the PR council ever asking or caring, not knowing if something is safe means it is not safe. <laughs> safe means not being exposed to the threat or, or of danger or harm. If you have not proven something is safe, it is not safe. It may harm you or it may not, but that unknown is proof that it is not safe just like a firearm is not safe until you prove it is safe. So Bernays, uh, his PR doesn't care if the medical treatment is safe or not. A company, uh, medical or not, simply wants to promote a narrative and PR dutifully makes that happen 
regardless of safety concerns to the public. From Bernays' anecdotes or cases, it appears that PR are sociopath narrative whores. They will promote any narrative so long as the client pays, which includes medical truths with no proofs which are clearly, I need to explicitly say this perhaps, that they are not, in fact, medical truths. (laughs) Bernays uh, gives an example of the League of Nations. That's the precursor to the UN. The League of Nations trying to drum up uh, support for themselves. Their PR assisted in the formation of a committee which called women from partisan parties, radical, reactionary, club, society, professional, and industrial groups and suggested that they make a united appeal for support for the league. This meeting reflected disinterested and ununified support. So what did PR do? They made articulate what would have otherwise been, have remained a strong passive statement. These are Bernays' own words. So the women were like, I'm not interested about your stupid global globalist league. You know, go do whatever you want. So PR spun the reaction to be a positive one. Also, why is BR Bernays focusing on women? Does he believe that they are more manipulable? Or uh, what? Bernays gives other examples where PR uh, got their clients to print or publish Bibles, uh, or to stores not listing their prices, to uh, exhibiting their wares in a museum, to to founding a scholarship on their subject as a promotional and virtue signaling tool, which are not bad ideas, I suppose, but it's false, fake, right? Go print a Bible. Yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll look good in the, uh, the Bible belt, right? You're a publisher that printed the Bible, right? Uh, don't, don't list your prices. If people need to ask, they can't afford it. Right? Or make people embarrassed to ask how much it is. Make them feel like they're poor. They can't afford it if they need to bother asking the price, right? This, the manipulation of, of PR and stores. Even, geez. So to me, it is, uh, it is ethical to inform people as clear as possible of the facts and let them organically come up with their own opinions. But this is apparently not the world that we live in. Bernays attributes the need for PR and control over the public's opinions because there are individuals, groups, and movements that are dependent on public support for their success and due to men and organizations who used to be able to say, the public be damned, Apparently, they can't do this anymore. So these wealthy barons have to be concerned about what the the useless eaters, the hoi polloi, uh, think or say or, or, or what their opinions are. So the fact that someone created an org that depends on public support justifies the manipulation of public to make that org a success. <laughs> you know, just because you create an organization that depends on public support doesn't mean you're allowed to monitor or or, or uh, manipulate that public in order to support your organization. It's not justification, right? And because money burns, you know, can't tell the public to get lost anymore, right? Uh, that is somehow justification for for deception of of an unsuspecting public, according to public relations guru, or father uh, Edward Bernays, right? This is so. So 
Bernays talks about pandering to the court of public opinion. He writes, the public is a highly sophisticated body. It asks questions and if the answer in a word or action is not forthcoming or satisfactory, it turns to other sources of information for relief. This quote made during the COVID fear porn epoch, uh, epoch, epic, is sufficient for the perception management uh, complex and their useful idiot Gustavian crowd surfs to call the quarter a conspiracy theorist and be deplatformed. You know, I've been kicked off of Twitter for saying less than what Bernays claimed 100 years ago, right, about the publicly, uh, the public demanding questions. And if they don't get it, if it's not forthcoming, right, they, they, they turn to other sources for information, right? Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist if you do that. If you actually research, you do your own research. What's wrong with you? Don't you just listen to what we tell you to? Like, this is, right? So the PR of today is pushing hard for people to not stray from sources under direct control of PR and their, their uh, puppet master big money or anyone who is agreeing with their narrative. So par for the course uh, for PR, it's just, it's just blatant. Sadly, Bernays goes on to utilize this fact that people seek information elsewhere if they don't get acceptable answers as a vector of attack by PR. Or he at least foreshadows that by writing, and here I'm going to quote, the willingness to spend thousands in obtaining professional advice on how to best present one's views or products to a public is based on this fact. So this is what he's referring to that people are willing. Back in the day, 100 years ago, thousands was a lot of money, right? So the implied tactic is to claim your questions are not being answered, but we can furnish it which is the following punch to the fact PR answering a question that no one asked. <laughs> Who asked, should I wear bobbed hair or grow it out so I have to buy more hairnets? No one, right? Women just started doing it for their own reasons. Perhaps the, the scissor lobby uh, tricked them into cutting their hair and they were targeted and their behavior and opinions were corrected with thoughts that favored the financial interests of the puppet masters who paid for the hairnet campaign. I mean, which this is, this. Bernays conflates public opinion with a uh, reporter's opinion. So this indicates to me that he cares so little about the individual's rights to their own opinion that he completely removes them from the equation. Also, aren't reporters' opinions supposed to not matter when it comes to the news? Or are we conflating a reporter's opinion with news? Apparently so. So the suppressed premise that we are meant to infer is that reporters are wholesome and fight for the public. What a joke, right? Bernays will later refute this by claiming PR creates the news. Removing reporters' wholesomeness from the plot. Bernays' stance appears to be that reporters control opin uh, public opinion, not inform, but dictate it. This is not because people are unable to think, they can, but control is easier when you do not let them, especially in a mode not wanted by the moneyed establishment control freaks. That is, questioning things. They do not want anyone questioning anything. Look at what they have done, you know, about something as innocuous as one's hair length. Just imagine what they have done and continue to, to do about issues of real uh, substantial consequence. Bernays writes that the pressure of the public for admittance 
to uh, mysteries of foreign affairs is being felt by the nations of the world. <laughs> so what does he mean in regards to uh, in public relations? Are, are, are the public hiring PR to manipulate the governments or are governments using PR against the people? Well, if you're the public and you're not hiring PR, I think you don't answer that question. I don't think Bernays was alone in conflating uh, the public with journalism as if a reporter can interpret an event and give it back to the world as the nation's interpretation. It's a stereotype of millions and is clearly idiotic. Although the origin of the press was intended to be the people sharing information, it was a mechanism for people to share information. So it wasn't about some elitist class of journalist. It was simply anyone in the public who wanted to communicate with other members of the public, which is valuable. And it's not about having a controlled um, elite of journalists to filter the information to the public, obviously. But this is what's sort of been manipulated and happened to today. Now we have this, these elite journalists say, oh, you're not a recognized reporter. Nothing makes anyone, the only thing that makes a person a recognized, uh, an actual recognized journalist in terms of the public is their participation or being in that public. That's it. You don't have to have some bogus uh, class from some woke university that try to manipulate how you, you, you filter things. So what happens? Um, yeah. So we have, you know, Bernays is implying that a reporter can report back to a nation to give the nation its opinion. But what happens if, if there's two reporters of the same nation who, who write opposed opinions, right? News isn't opinions, right? Opinion is only to that individual. They're trying to make op-eds, all these fallacious appeals to, you know, the mob, right? If you write an op-ed and you're trying to appeal uh, to the mob, you say, well, this is how we think. This is how uh, women's leaders think. This is why you should cut your hair or not cut your hair, right? It's all bogus. So a journalist's personal uh, interpretation is, is clearly not that of an entire nation. Uh, they might be resented, uh, representative of a maybe a portion of the public who obviously share their views, but there's no monoliths. It is uh, millions, millions and millions of individuals, hundreds of millions. Well, Canada, tens of millions. The point is that Bernays believes uh, reporters control public opinion, or they are the public opinion. Therefore, PR should just control the journalists to control public opinion, right? From the perspective of a manipulator in PR, that's all you need to do, just control the journalists, and therefore you control the idiot masses that listen to those journalists. So Bernays wrote this, uh, he quotes this uh, Walter Lippmann douchebag. Uh, and he, Walter Lippmann says, the evolution which is taking place in the art of creating consent among the governed. So this sounds a lot like that uh, douchebag Noam Chomsky, who I used to like, but he's a clearly douchebag. Uh, he wrote this book, uh, many of you read probably, uh, Manufacturing Consent. So it's, it's clear PR, according to Bernays, is not about informing, it's about controlling. So note Lippmann's quote didn't say creating consent between the government and the governed. He said creating consent among the governed. 
So does he mean the governed consent among themselves? No, obviously not. He means the consent to comply, and that consent is via manipulation by propaganda. Lippmann continues, Within the life of those now in control of affairs, persuasion has become a self-conscious art, an irregular organ of popular government. So Lippmann is implying that it is not the people who are in control of affairs in a popular government. It is the usurping control freaks who are hiring PR to manipulate the public. Therefore, meaning by definition, the government is not a popular government, as a popular government by definition is controlled by the people. Popular means the people. And the people certainly are not hiring PR to manipulate themselves. Therefore, Lippmann suppressed redefinition of popular government is a government that is controlled by a small dictatorial group. How very Marxist of him. It is clearly not a popular government that controls the people. That type of government we call a dictatorship. If pinko douchebag Walter Lippmann had at least half a brain, he would know that. But he doesn't call it by its definition. So he's attempting to defame popular governments. Ironic that elitists hate on popular governments by treating them as dictatorships, yet they look, they yearn for dictatorship where they have centralized control and not the surplus population, useless eaters uh, of the masses who are in control. So they are hating on what they are striving for, the douchebags. Publicly, they are publicly hating on what they are striving for. So here's some more Lippmann. He continues, the only constraints of our thinking have become variables. Then he takes a quite a Marxist turn even more. It is no longer possible to believe in the dogma of democracy, that the knowledge needed for the management of human affairs comes up instantaneously from the human heart. So it's, it's called a straw man, right? I don't know uh, who's ever claimed that, but democracy is not defined as the management of human affairs from the human heart. But isn't it interesting that they attack democracy as something controlled by something as irrational as the human heart? So these scumbags are fully aware of the fallacious appeal to emotion and that emotions are used to cloud, cloud judgment. The fuckers. Perhaps this is how the emotionless sociopaths of PR and communism see democracy. I'm all for trying to control our emotions, but these sociopaths don't have any. <laughs> and democracy is not dogma. It's the antithesis of dogma. Democracy is all about voices being heard, especially those that fight dogma. So why is this pinko shit even in a book about manipulation? Because those, ha those asshats are the main customers of manipulation. The public would never go along with their absurdity if it was exposed in the light of day. And Bernays is most probably trying to stroke the elitist's lust for centralized control. Target audience, sociopaths, Marxists, 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 and elitists. It's redundant to say sociopaths when referring to Marxists and elitists. It's implicit. So more Lippmann, he says, uh, 
Were we to act on that theory, we expose ourselves to self-deception and forms of persuasion that we cannot verify. Hold on there, man. Do you recognize his logical fallacy? His first falsely defines democracy as something it is not. He included the, uh, the disparagement of calling it a dogma. Then he argues against that new false de definition that he just created. Seeing how this is, in a, uh, this is a quote included in a book about public relations, it's safe to assume that they are framing their deceptions as something that they are not noble, right? And setting up the people, the populace, as some kind of weed that are incapable of being able to manage their, their human affairs since their knowledge only comes from their human hearts. Like, does Lippmann not think of himself as human? Perhaps he's not. Perhaps he's a reptilian, right? He is definitely a douchebag. So redefine, attack it, and gross error in overgeneralization. That's the mode that Lippmann is using. But since they conflate public opinion with journalists, perhaps they are actually trying to disparage journalists. <laughs> I don't think so. But uh, Lippmann finishes off with something that sounds reasonable if you read it and don't really think about it. But the more you do, the more it turns into garbage, an unfounded assertion, and outright disinformation. <clears throat> Read it here. It has been demonstrated that we cannot rely on intuition, conscience, or casual opinion if we are to deal with the world beyond our reach. It has been demonstrated. Where has it been demonstrated? It has been demonstrated that we cannot rely on intuition. Clearly, we shouldn't rely solely on intuition, but evolution has given us intuition for a reason, and we should also not ignore our intuition, but treat it as a form of evidence. We can't rely upon conscience. Where has it been demonstrated that we cannot rely on our conscience? Conscience is defined as our awareness of right and wrong, conformity to our sense of ethical conduct. This motherfucker is saying, ignore your conscience. Apparently, to be PR, you must be a sociopath and ignore your conscience, if you have one. Which makes sense if they have to argue for whatever narrative big money tells them regardless of how evil it is and how much harm it causes to the greater society. It has been demonstrated that we can't rely on intuition, consciousness, conscience, or the accidents of casual opinion. When I first read that, I read causal opinion, which made me pause for a bit and look at this whole sentence a little closer. Casual opinion, not causal. So Lippmann doesn't define what he means by casual opinion. We can speculate, but recall that they conflate journalism with public opinion. So does he really mean what journalists wrote casually? <laughs> no, obviously. Well, not obviously. These guys are crazy, right? So I would think the most likely meaning is that he means an ill-informed public. So are we 
are conflating public with journalists again? You know, are, are we to differentiate them? I doubt he would, would claim journalists have casual opinions, but they do, I guess, you know, so maybe he's, so the individual in terms of public relations, these guys, you know, they try to blow smoke up journalists' ass all the time, right? To get the journalists to comply with what the public relations people want. But if they're in fact different people, they might even be the same people today, who knows? So the individual of the public uses his best guess opinion. The logic of abductive reasoning is the claim Lippmann is making that John Q. Public has, the casual opinion, I'm assuming. While we all sometimes use uh, abductive reasoning, I, or best guesses, I would uh, agree we should avoid using it if we can. But Lippmann is not claiming we just use it sometimes when we have no other choice. Recall his definition of popular government in the dogma of democracy, that the knowledge needed for this management of human affairs comes up instantaneously from the heart, the, the human heart. <laughs> this implies the idiot populace only uses whatever their heart tells them, which sounds a lot like casual opinions. Though if someone researched the crap out of something and used critical analysis and came to a conclusion, uh, wouldn't their heart agree with their mind? But this is most likely not the interpretation that uh, Pinko uh, Littman is making. He's implying there is no critical thought, no valid research, no truth, but power is the Pinko mantra. So let's finish this quote. It has been demonstrated that we can't rely on intuition, conscience, or casual opinion if we are to deal with the world beyond our reach. Well, if we are dealing with it, it isn't beyond our reach, right? Unless by dealing, he means mentally handling, understanding, or coming to grips with. Yeah. It's dangerous to assume what these idiots mean in regards to the normal interpretation of something. So you kind of have to use the literal interpretation because they're so uh, squirmy. And in this section, Bernays is referring to the importance of public opinion and is conflating it with that of journalists. His target audience are the elites. Trying to grasp what the hell the public, the point is of Littman in that context leaves us to think he's just trying to sell the utility of PR in a world where you idiot elites can't rely on your normal thinking processes or intuition, conscience, or casual opinion, and therefore require us geniuses in PR who have no conscience but do rely solely on our intuition and stereotypes. <laughs> Bernays gives it a, an example of the U.S. government's interference with coal production. The gist of the PR campaign was for the public to not misinterpret the whole coal industry by the actions of a minority of actors, which is odd as Bernays later argues that he uses the logic of stereotype and in order to be successful in PR, you must too. So Bernays writes how a, uh, even a non-competitive organizations have reasons to manipulate the public's opinion. His example is the subway who strive to create the feeling of submissiveness towards inconveniences, which are more or less unavoidable. <laughs> which inconveniences are unavoidable? Does he mean having to stick one's face in some fat bastard's armpit during rush hour? He doesn't say. 
Bernays touches on the propaganda and manipulation of public opinion by public health departments. Of course, they use formula like constructive work and public education and embattling evil and building up spirit instead of what it truly is, manipulation. Or on, uh, on public health, Bernays writes, when the health departments recognize that such diseases as cancer, TB, and those following malnutrition are due generally to ignorance or neglect and that amelioration or prevention will be the result of knowledge. It's the next logical step for this department to devote strenuous efforts to its PR campaign. Holy shit. I did not know that cancer was caused by ignorance and that the cure for cancer is public relations. What a dick. I don't think uh, he thinks people are that stupid. I think Bernays is that stupid. <laughs> I see I see why uh, Marxist scum and PR types get along so well. They are both idiots. See everything through the tainted lens of control and power, overgeneralize, lack critical thinking skills, and are sociopaths. Bernays talks about the need for governments to use foreign and domestic propaganda how businesses need PR to keep the danger of interference by the public at bay, and that businesses need to focus on things other than merely their core competencies, such as building up favorable public reaction. Bernays is arguing for businesses to be more like a self-conscious teen who's, who's more concerned about how they are perceived than building actual character and confidence. He writes, he writes, but he, he also writes how businesses should focus on not just the quality of their product, but also on the working conditions, hours, and even living conditions of the men who make it. Today, some have been educated to not make these things, uh, take these things into consideration as the brutality and abuse of the modern slaves by international corporations in China with suicide nets around the factories, like who make uh, Apple products like iPhones and, and Nike are ignored by the brand loyal peons who uh, proudly display the, the logos of the douchebag corporations. It's a sad state when Edward Bernays is more moral than the brand loyal idiots who buy Nike and Apple. I would imagine Apple or one of the other dozens of companies who make garbage propaganda espousing how great their employees were treated in China if they could. But I also imagine that that PR would be suicide uh, as it gets people to even think about how the workers are treated in China and probably elsewhere. Bernays cites how phone companies need PR to ameliorate the hostility toward their shit service. <laughs> It appears in our society today that it is more acceptable to discuss any form of sexual perversion and deviance than it is to discuss the realities of manipulation and techniques, effects, affects, and specific campaigns that are or may be happening or ones that have happened and are ascribed by those who did them. Dirty secrets, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, 
these religious formula have been programmed deeply into our social psyche. This is a topic that is, for some reason, difficult to breach. I can't get a dialogue going on it, especially with somebody who's totally unaware. Those who are in the know seem to have no problem talking at length on it, but those who don't run like scared whelps. Is this reluctance due to people not believing it, not wanting to believe it, perhaps a result of some conditioning not to? I, I don't remember ever experiencing or hearing anything about it being taboo. Perhaps that's why I can talk about it. I must have been sick that day. <laughs> I do remember anti-nerd conditioning and some parental conditioning and a lot of work ethic conditioning. It appears that something that has been around for a very long time and not discussed in movies or TV shows is perceived as an evil so dark as to be avoided and ignored. These topics have been covered, but only in a very filtered Disney-like fashion. There have been movies about CIA, you know, being douchebags, but I can't think of any that expose PR as evil. Eyes Wide Shut only hinted at a deep level of uh, corruption. That movie uh, Network was actually pretty good. Uh, if there's a movie about manipulation and deception, it's a con movie or a movie about grifters, and psychos, and spouses, and criminals, not PR, corporations and government. Maybe there is, and I just can't think of any. I don't know. There are books and manuals on it. <laughs> Makes me think of the cognitive errors of minimizing and maximizing, or is it uh, magnification and minimization? Magnification is the cognitive error of exaggerating or overinflating the meaning of something or of an anecdote and ignoring the possibility of a larger data set, which is closely associated with the concept of stereotype. Minimizing is the opposite. It's the ignoring of the severity or importance of something. I don't know if importance is the right word as importance is objective. So how could someone inflate or minimize the importance of something when they are the bar as to what is important to them. <laughs> a common trait in false reasoning of the manipulator and the target is ascribing meaning to something that is random or doesn't have that meaning. This is related to the causation correlation fallacy. See, uh, they see causation when there is only correlation. Seeing false connections like this is called uh, meaningful. Seeing false meaningful connections is called apophenia. Interestingly, there's a, a converse to epiphenia, and it's also called apophenia. <laughs> seeing a false connection um, or pattern in random noise, a meaningful, seeing a meaningful connection that is false in random noise is called epiphenia type 1, which is a false positive. And the converse is not seeing a, uh, connecting, a connection or pattern where there is one, not seeing a meaningful, I keep forgetting that word because it's, it's meaningful, not seeing a meaningful connection or pattern where there is one is called apophenia type two, which is a false negative. So I refer to uh, false positive apophenia as phantom connections. And I suppose uh, false negatives, that's not seeing the bridge is, uh, is actually there, like Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail movie. So I guess uh, we can call that the invisible bridge. It's actually there, but for whatever reason, we can't see it. Perhaps it's dark out. <laughs> the invisible bridge is apophenia type 2. So the closed-minded skeptics suffer from apophenia type 2, blind to the, the bridge, uh, or they just don't or won't see it. Uh, 
you know, he would be the 1800s man screaming, the earth is flat. The 1950s expert screaming, it is impossible for a man to ever venture into space. Or today he is the Michael Shermer. the type who puts the word science in front of skeptic. Science is what ifs, not it's impossible. So apophenia's type two fail to acknowledge new evidence and hold back actual science. Sadly, their cognitive error is somehow socially acceptable, perhaps because it jibes with some people's reluctance uh, towards change, the conservative tendency of dogmatic bigots in science who are oddly mostly left, which is funny because traditionally left is about the new progress. But uh, today they're the ultra conservative. They don't want to change certain things, but they really want to change other things. It's, it's, a, it's a mishmash. So if it doesn't exist in, in their little mind, it can't exist in the infinite vastness of objective reality. I can only speculate on why they're like that. Uh, there, There's a multitude of causes for this type of cognitive error. My point is that it can happen to us all, and we should always be on the lookout for both types of apophenia, false positives and false negatives, phantom connections and Indiana Jones Bridge, both in others and in ourselves. This is the path to sound judgment. (laughs) Sound like Buddha. Even Carl Jung goes off the deep end. I mean, I enjoy his writing on his theory of synchronicity, but he goes full astrological woo-woo you know, halfway through uh, one of his books, synchronicity is not something one can prove, but it's also not something one can disprove. It's not like the uh, claiming unicorns live on some planet on the other side of the universe. This is a, a phenomenon, an observable event. There is evidence and most of us experience at some point in our lives. We can choose to dismiss it or not, but there is no evidence that it is meaningless. So I'm not so close-minded that I have to claim with 100% certainty that it does not exist. We are rational enough to, uh, to put it in a box labeled unknown, perhaps tentatively unknown. We are all capable of suspension of judgment. We have the capacity to not make a binary guess that something is real or not because the abductive logic, uh, because because that's abductive logic and it's the shittiest mode of thinking that humans have. Though when it comes to astrology, I'm willing to call that bullshit. (laughs) Because unlike synchronicity, there is no event or experience that astrology gives us as evidence. Proven. I'm not saying synchronicity is not just a cognitive error. It may be, but it uh, may also not be, (laughs) right? Uh, Many try to explain it away just like deja vu, but as a phenomenon, they do exist and are experienced by many people. More data is needed. Perhaps it's already out there and I just don't know. I haven't really researched deja vu and uh, all that well, or, or synchronicities even. But um, So when we hear the Michael Shermers or whomever claim there is no such thing, we know from that claim alone that they are experiencing the cognitive error of apophenia type 2, false negative. I don't know how Michael Shermer actually feels about it or if he's even talked about it. I'm just using him as a straw man because he's a douchebag. I know he's claimed there definitely is no God. He doesn't have evidence to prove that. You can choose to believe or not, but no one can prove the negative. So what do you call the error of someone who uh, claims an unprovable is true or false? I suppose you'd have to call them a uh, uncritical thinker 
as they are demonstrating their incapacity to suspend judgment when that is the only rational course. He can't support his claim with evidence that God does not exist. His claim is unsupportable. By making a, a claim that an unprovable is definitely false is just as wrong as claiming it is definitely true. <laughs> Shermer is what he is fighting against, assuming he's fighting against irrationality. But maybe he's not. Maybe he's just fighting against God, right? One could uh, just as easily have picked dragons or unicorns. We uh, Can we claim with 100% certainty they do not exist? No, we can't. Can we claim that it's very unlikely that they exist today on Earth? Well, of course. Is it not possible for dragons, unicorns, or even the tooth fairy to exist somewhere in this vast, potentially infinite universe? Or potentially infinite multiverses? Who knows? Maybe Carl Jung's uh, isn't crackers, and, and, and we do have a collective unconsciousness memory that goes back hundreds of millions of years, and in our deep DNA, we remember dragons and other beasts. You know, dragons do look a lot like dinosaurs. Cult members are conditioned to have an immediate responses to questions their manipulators expect their family and friends to ask those family and friend, you know, not being in the cult. So they're conditioned to emotionally and immediately respond to the doubting Thomas, frame them and name them as the others, the uneducated, the unenlightened, or have pre-made responses for the obvious questions. So the cult member doesn't have to think. They just regurgitate it, regurgitate it before a thought kicks in, these immediate knee-jerk reactions. There are a, a few simple questions we need to ask ourselves and, and those communicating us uh, with us, the, the nasty nine, I call. So does this warrant my attention? Is it entertaining or informative? Is it important? That's question one. I guess those are three questions. <laughs> uh, am I or are they reacting emotionally to this? Can I calm my emotions and think rationally? Question three, where am I on the gullible to cynical spectrum? Uh, and there's an interesting word that we don't really use anymore. It's credulous. Credulous, you know, susceptible to, it means gullible, right? Being manipulated. How easy are you to be manipulated? It's odd that we don't use that word very often anymore. It's a word we should be using and thinking about more often. Credulous. Am I easy to manipulate? <laughs> Nobody thinks they are, right? But we probably are way more easy to manipulate than we think. Especially if you've never thoughten, thoughten? <laughs> if you've never thoughten about this. Um, question four on the nasty nine. Where am I and where are they on the experience scale for this topic? Naive, lacking experience and knowledge or experienced and well-read or somewhere in the middle. Question five, where are we and where are they on the, uh, the epiphenia scale? I mean, type, type, type one, seeing false connections, type two, blind to valid connections. Are they experiencing both errors or are they seeing like a type 1.5, <laughs> you know, seeing valid connections? 
I'm going to define apophenia type 1.5 as seeing meaningful connections when they exist. <laughs> so question five, uh, no, that would be question six, I guess. Uh, is there logical fallacies, appeals to emotion, appeals to authority, uh, assertions without evidence, using stereotypes, etc.? Question six, if they are giving evidence, is it valid? What's the source? What's the funding of the source? Is it an assertion? Is there extraordinary claims, you know, requiring extraordinary proof? Is, was it, uh, what's his name there? Carl Sagan? Carl Sagan? Okay, uh, so what do we at? Uh, seven, eight, whatever the hell. Um, if they are using logic, what form of logic are they using? And is it sound logic? Is there uh, next question, I guess, would be, is there more than one way to interpret it? That's a big one. Always seek multiple interpretations of data because there's more than one way. A lot of people just find the first interpretation, clamp onto it, and that's it. Not pausing to think there might be like 10 other interpretations that are perhaps more valid. So... Next question of the uh, nasty nine, which might be 10 at this point. Am I, or are they close-minded or open-minded? You know, are we not being receptive to new ideas or ideas that, you know, um, are against what we currently believe? You know, it pretty much won't take long to assess if someone appears to be open-minded, gullible, naive, unquestioning, uh, emotional, you know, type one apophenic or close-minded, cynical, naive, unquestioning type two apophenic or pretty much any, any combination of these factors. There's many dimensions here or uh, scales to look at, I suppose. These factors of, of course, require judgment as most of the factors in reasoning are gradients, you know, analog spectra smeared from one concept to another and not digital, uh, not dichotomies, perhaps trichotomies, uh, which are clean cut into two or three distinct elements. Just because we uh, we don't want to be type one apophenics, you know, seeing false or phantom connections that don't really exist, doesn't mean we should snap to the opposite end and be type twos who are blind to valid connections. Right? It's making some saying something is false that you can't prove false is just as bad as saying something's true that you can't prove false. They're both equally wrong. So we need to have the capacity of balance and, and judge uh, with reason and nuance. And everybody thinks they, they're, they have good judgment. Nobody does. <laughs> so we need to not be crass, even though uh, being crass is fun and, and easier. Uh, we need to be able to discriminate to refine our thinking into a more sophisticated level without being arrogant assholes who think they are smarter than everyone else because we are not. And if you happen to actually be smarter than every, everyone else, that in no way alleviates your need, your requirement to continue to think critically on an ongoing manner and realize that you are not omniscient. And it's extremely unlikely that you are smarter than everyone else in all subjects. I would say that it is so unlikely that it is virtually impossible that one human is smarter than everyone else on all subjects. In fact, it appears to be uh, 
the more letters one has behind their name, the less general knowledge we have. Uh, the more narrow the focus of one subject, the more blind we are to the broader spectrum of general knowledge. What's even worse is when we study the, the soft sciences and hyper-focus on the bullshit non-science of, of that field, and it still costs us our general knowledge base. In the end, we end up knowing nothing. Our lives are thrown away on a garbage degree, uh, you know, with with uneducated vagrants on the streets having more accurate general knowledge than us. This, of course, is just a stereotype of mine. Stereotypes don't prove anything, but are perhaps evidence of patterns, perhaps uh, type 1 apophenia. <laughs> so this, this scale of apophenia from type 1 to no apophenia uh, or normal, then back into an apophenia type 2 can be applied to each topic separately uh, to all of us. It's not a stereotype of the person's entire character, only on that very specific topic. Uh, apophenia at the ends and uh, normalcy in the middle. So I guess the scale <clears throat> normal uh, is a form of apophenia. Since it's between type 1 and 2, we'll call it type 1.5. The Goldilocks, uh, not too cold, not too hot, just right like body weight, not too skinny or fat, just right. The Goldilocks of Apophenia. There's a, uh, the concept of unfit. Unfit means many things, incapable, unsuitable, not qualified, physically or mentally unsound. There, there are two reasons why one may be unfit physically or mentally. They are either, either unable or unwilling, and those are two separate concepts. Unable is beyond our control, and unwilling is within our control. There's uh, physically unable people missing full use of their body, and there's the lazy fat slobs willing to, uh, unwilling to get fit. Two separate groups, though they are both unfit. So there's also mentally, there's a chemical imbalance, neurological damage, or malformation, and there, there's lazy thinking and the ideological fuckwads. There's a distinction. They, uh, they both are unfit or insane. Sanity is defined as rational thought. So uh, rational is defined as, the, uh, as based on reason or good judgment, logical or sensible. So apophenia itself is not a clinical disorder. We all suffer from it, from the sanest person to the Marxist at the other end of the spectrum. One may argue that Marxists have a clinical mental disorder due to their being Marxists and therefore are, should be a protected class as mentally ill, which is likely for some, but most Marxists are simply manipulated due to their uncritical choices. They are capable of being able to reason, but are unwilling. They can be brought back to cognitive health if they work on it, but they have to be willing. There are many cases of cult members who break free or are brought back to sanity. This is a tall order today with many sources of yellow journalism, PR, corrupted schools, and other forms of cult insanity inundating the public daily with fabricated narratives. Though this inundation of manipulation is also its weakness. When we point out the logical fallacies and techniques, it's easier to see as there's no shortage of fresh supply. 
When I attack the uncritical reasoning, I am not attacking the mentally ill who are so due to chemical imbalance, for example. I'm attacking the not rational and mistaken reasoning many people fall prey due to their being too lazy to analyze the information they are receiving. Those who are incapable of sound reasoning due to reasons beyond manipulation are a distinctly separate class. We are the targets, and it is our sloppy thinking that enables manipulators. The manipulators are obviously to blame, but since an appeal to the manipulators would be futile, the only course of action is to inform the targets how our flawed thinking is a vector of attack by alien forces. Alien as in foreign or external, but if you want to interpret it as in UFO aliens, <laughs> that's fine too. I could see one day the half-cocked left will attack me by misusing uh, Morton Birnbaum's sanism, uh, which he meant back in the 1960s to curb what he viewed as discrimination against the stereotypes of the clinically mentally ill, which is uh, clearly bogus in the context of an exploration of the most powerful and sane methods of reasoning. <clears throat> if we learn new concepts which allow us to be more rational and critical, does that mean we are now less insane? I suppose so. As I said earlier, this podcast is an exploration for cognitive health and well-being, specifically in the defense against manipulation via manipulating the methods of rational and critical thought. So if the half-cocked Marxists want to attack anyone, they should attack the spreaders of the cognitive disease of uncritical modes of thought, logical fallacies, stereotype of manipulation. But then the light would be shone on their manipulative, irrational garbage. Anyway, I will, uh, we all make type one and type two errors. Well, most likely. No one is omniscient. No one is all-knowing. Of course, we are all going to sometimes make mistakes in seeing phantom connections and sometimes be blind to valid connections. And uh, striving to not have those errors is a voyage. It is not a destination. This is part of the journey of critical thought. It takes a special kind of stupid to think you never make mistakes. Humans need to be more introspective. We need to hold the mirror up to our thoughts, beliefs, opinions, words, and actions, and compare them to our values, and at the same time, try to rise above our savage, lazy, vestigial monkey brain. We need to reflectospect. <laughs> that is my word. Trademark, Paul Mill. I'm as guilty as anyone else. I uh, need to drink the Kool-Aid as much as the rest of you idiots. But uh, we all suffer from both types of apophenia at times, false connections, and blind to valid connections. And it's dangerous when it's an important topic. It's easy to see how someone being taught about voodoo religions might retract their, their mode of thinking um, away from the, the type one phantom connections. But if they are not aware about the other end of the spectrum, the, uh, the type two being blind to valid connections, they can easily slip too far and become an idiotic skeptic like Michael Shermer or a complete fool like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Bernays is implying that even hard-cooked cynics can be manipulated if the authority of the source of their opinion is attacked 
and a new narrative is hammered at them by sources of apparently recognized authority. Which makes sense, as a closed-minded person does not mean that they are rational or critical. Clearly, as we all know, closed-minded cynics who are not rational. Closed-minded just means they are not receptive to new ideas. This does not mean that they are impervious, and if manipulated properly or thawed and cooked properly, they will refreeze their new opinions on their own, making them great maintainers of the cult's ideology, especially when it's being done without their being aware of it. From the manipulator's perspective, closed-minded targets are very desirable for the long term or longer term. Recalcitrant means stubbornly resistant, which could be due to closed-mindedness, or it could be due to actually knowing better and being a critical thinker. A a recalcitrant critical thinker is known as hard-to-reach, a a hard-to-reach target, a target that is the most desirable place to be if you're a target. I have a uh, quick psychological test for you. It tests if you have been conditioned. Given the vast resources devoted to this topic, it's a quick test. If I mention the name Donald Trump, how does that make you feel? Conditioned people instantly have a visceral reaction. Now, that's redundant for me because visceral means arising from a sudden emotion rather than thought. So we may have a visceral reaction We may try to explain or justify our feelings in some way, but that visceral reaction is indicative of conditioning. One person might be emotionally unhinged, uh, you know, anti-Trump. One might be emotionally unhinged pro-Trump. Others might be objective types who do not respond viscerally to a name. It's also easy to see how conditioned people are prone to the either-or fallacy or vulnerable to it. A non-critical thinker would argue you either hate Trump or you are a hardcore supporter with no well-informed rational observer in between, or perhaps an indifferent, uninformed person who just doesn't care. The lazy, fallacious mode of thinking that flips from one extreme to the other, the polarization, the the monolithic stereotypes and either-ors, that is the dichotomy or binary thinking of the exploited mind. It appears that emotionally-based thinking is more primal and makes it harder for the target to have a, uh, sophisticated thoughts you know, with balance and nuance. We get angry and we don't want to listen to contra- uh, contradictory evidence. Don't tell me what I know, I know what I saw. Which translates to, don't give me information that contradicts my interpretation. I'm so close-minded, I refuse to contemplate that I might be wrong or that there may be other more valid interpretations other than the one that I spontaneously made. Which, of course, makes the target more valuable to the manipulator as the conditioning will last a long time before it's ever overwhelmed by contradictory evidence. If ever. This is apparently a lot more prevalent on the political left today as the closed-minded are emotionally unhinged and ubiquitous and easy to detect. not saying it doesn't happen on the right, but it just appears to be way more prevalent on the left. I'm not saying if you support Trump, you're a hardcore supporter. I'm also not saying if you don't support Trump, you're an emotionally unhinged fool. Uh, 
But if you feel strong emotions when you hear his name, review your critical thinking checklist. The same goes with every concept or topic, religion or divisions within, teams, partisan politics, ideologies. I'm not saying emotional response proves you're suffering from uncritical thought, but it is strong evidence of it. Conversely, just because you are not experiencing an emotional response on a topic does not prove that you are not suffering from flawed conclusions. If you want to see extreme examples of bigoted stereotype, either or fallacy mixed in with come hawk ergo propter hawk, look at the Toronto Star. But be warned, you may vomit in your mouth. It's difficult to talk with someone who has been conditioned on a subject or topic without their embracing emotion, cognitive dissonance, and at the least the desire to call you names if they can hold their tongue. I'm sure we've all experienced both sides of this. Is it possible for us to experience this on a subject we were not conditioned on? What is the natural mechanism that is being capitalized on here, if there is one? A reluctance to be critical? A want to just use heuristics? A desire to simplify the vast unknowns of the world into simple little pigeonholes, regardless of the loss of accuracy? A reluctance to want to reopen a cell of knowledge that we've already sealed up and put on the shelf. A reluctance to admit some of our schema may be wrong or incomplete. Is it just lazy thinking? Did uh, natural selection design us to use the minimum reasoning and knowledge necessary to live long enough to procreate and produce our spawn to adulthood? Does less accurate reasoning take less energy? If you cut corners and jump to assumptions and stereotype, I suppose. Apparently our brains use uh, somewhere around 20% of our, our total energy. That's a very expensive organ to run and it goes up if we are using our brain, you know, more. So evolutionarily, I could see why it would make sense to limit the use of our, our processor as much as possible and still get the results desired for procreation and our spawn surviving to adulthood. But we're also thinkers and we've evolved to question our reasoning. I assume that is part of our genetic programming too. Metacognition, thinking about our thinking. Perhaps we are an amalgam of vestigial proto-caveman savage thinking and uh, some form of higher developed, more sophisticated post-savage thinking. We may have uh, vestigial algorithms of archaic, you know, thinking modes in our DNA and newer algorithms that benefit us more. Nature doesn't uh, clean sweep old modes via evolution. It's not a digital leap from one model to the, to the next. It's a, a messy morphology from old modes to slightly better uh, developed models. And even among those models, there's great variation, right? Of course, you'd want to have more variation. Uh, so it would, uh, it would make sense that we have this this cognitive dissonance, dissonance of, of, of faulty, less evolved modes of thought mixed in with whatever caused our sleeker, more evolved faculties. And to add to this, two geniuses can have a, uh, a throwback offspring. So it's all just percentages. Conversely, I guess uh, two throwbacks could have a genius offspring as well. If uh, modern humans have been around for a couple hundred thousand years, it seems plausible that we are still infected with a substantial dose of monkey brains. And it's this vestigial monkey brain that uh, manipulators target. 
that is the the mind they are appealing to the uh the emotional lazy thinking heuristic part all humans today have this part it's it's controllable perhaps not in everyone though perhaps the mentally ill cannot control it i don't know perhaps toronto star readers and and reporters are too monkey brain to be able to activate their higher brain functions if they have them at all so it's the it's the paradox of the heap at what point does the uncritical person become uh, mentally ill is it uh is it when they subscribe to the Toronto Star or or when they believe it? <laughs> I would like to believe everyone is capable of listening to and grasping valid reason, but objective reality doesn't care about what I would like to believe. And if uh, uh, past debates are an indi- indicator, some people are just closed off to any form of valid reasoning against their conditioning. So, I mean, the information's out there. It's been out there for centuries. The ancient Greeks, the Romans, uh, yet the bulk of critical mass of society still appeared to be monkey-brained. You know, there's a sucker born every minute. So is Laban's crowd an actual thing? I don't want it to be, but, and I also kind of doubt it, but uh, why are so of us so susceptible to being monkey-brained? I don't know. I suppose it takes energy, and when there are forces trying to get us to not bother to use our more sophisticated or higher evolved brain, um, and just use the simple ancient savage brain, a critical mass of people will just fall in line and use the lazy mode of thinking and eat at the trough of bullshit. We, We all slip sometimes. It's a condition of being human. It's not like Bernays is some evil genius. He's just a monkey brain who apparently has reprehensible values and has the minimum skills sufficient to fool or to be an apostle to the manipulator class. From an evolutionary perspective, I can see the utility of manipulating uh, innocent targets in the wild when it was eat or be eaten. Going back, you think about when... um, you talk to someone who's been conditioned on a specific topic and and they don't agree with you. They get pugnacious and uncommunicative. Perhaps this is the desired effect, right? Cult brainwashing 101. The cult member or target needs to be prepared to deal with people who ask questions and especially specific questions that might make the target break their spell and start con- uh, questioning the conditioned narrative. The manipulator needs the target to respond viscerally, to bypass thought or deliberation. The manipulator needs the target to swim in irrational emotion. They need the target to respond like a CNN viewer to the name of Donald Trump or a Toronto Star subscriber to the word conservative. There is the conversion phase of the target to the cult, And then there's the maintenance phase where the target can be released and will defend the cult's ideology when confronted by a reasonable question. The cult leader expects normal people to ask, you know, his his flock reasonable questions. So he's going to prepare them against those reasonable questions. This mechanism is also seen outside of branded cults (laughs) as well, obviously. The uh, degrading of conversation to an argument as an effective method of keeping the target cult member from listening to unforeseen questions and reasonable people outside of the cult. Or that may be the preferred mode of response for any questions 
you know, outside the orthodox belief of the target. We've all seen the squinting eyes, shaking of heads, and dismissive wave when a reasonable question is asked that goes against someone's orthodoxy, be it religion, politics, or stereotype. Sometimes lighthearted, sometimes not. Lotus Eaters. If you dare question uh, something someone is emotional about, even though everyone would agree that simply being emotional about something in no way affects its truthfulness, when we say or think we are passionate about something, that is a major flag for us to be self-critical, introspective, retroflective, my word, about that. Ad homonyms are blatant logical fallacies, but are effective in bringing about this conditioning. There are often... Uh, echoed by the manipulated when asked a reasonable question. If our opinion is based on logic and reason, we should have no trouble articulating why we think that way without getting so emotional that our hands shake. Framing the rational question asker as a heretic or someone not smart enough to understand the cult, despite them, they're, they're asking viable probing questions is very common. Just because someone has an opinion that is not the same as ours doesn't mean they are dumb. <laughs> and if we think they are dumb or worse, calling them dumb based solely on this makes us truly the idiots, especially if we cannot calmly listen to their reasoning before making a judgment. Quick to judge, quick to anger, slow to understand. Ignorance and prejudice and fear walk hand in hand. It was written by a local boy, Neil Peart. I've encountered a lot of this when discussing uh, Israel and Palestine. When there is no valid answer, the cult member on either side often says, you would not understand. And it's a cop-out not to answer a simple question. It makes them feel superior for being inferior. 